Um, Good morning. I'm going to read the scripture for us this morning, and it comes from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, if, if, like me, you're listening to that passage, and it's a beautiful passage, but sounds like a lot to do, sounds like a lot of commands, sounds like something you can't pull off, you're like me. You're in the same boat. This message is for you today. Um, if you think you can pull all those off perfectly, this message is all for, also for you. Um, so we're going to continue our series in, in uh, Colossians this week. The title and the theme of this series has been Returning to Our Roots. Um, we flourish in life only as we walk in Jesus as we first received him. Now last week we took a break from this series. Uh, my friend Ryuta preached and his message um, uh, came from Genesis 3. And took us back to the roots of our identity problems. Uh, And then he talked about how uh, Christ brings restoration to our identity. Now in Colossians 3, what we're going to see is that because Jesus has given us a new identity in himself, the result of that new identity is a new life, a new mindset, new heart postures and attitudes, new practices. Um, And our theme this week that we're going to see develop is Jesus is the adornment of the gospel. Um, Colossians puts um, Jesus on display for us. And our lives also should put Jesus on display for the world. He is what we should adorn ourselves with so that the world will see, the beauty that the world sees is Jesus' beauty. So with that being said, I'm going to pray and we'll, uh, we'll start on Colossians 3. Please join with me. Father God, thank you for Colossians 3. Thank you for the letter to the Colossians. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that it is uh, alive and speaking to us today. We're not keeping alive a dead tradition. We 
We speak the, the Apostles' Creed. We speak your word because it speaks to us today, because it is for us today, because you're speaking it to us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open up Colossians 3, that you would speak to our hearts, you bring transformation to our lives. We can't transform ourselves just like we could have never earned forgiveness for ourselves. You accomplished it. Lord, we ask that by your spirit, through faith, you would accomplish transformation in our lives, that our lives would be adorned with Jesus. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, anybody in here like to jump from planes? I'm going to start out the, ser the sermon just like that. I got one hand in the back. Okay, here we go. Here we go. All right. Anybody jump shootless before? No parachute. It you did it? Oh, yeah. Nobody's walking out the gospel in here. No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't jump with a chute, okay? So, um, too scared. Um, so, let me just say this. Growing up, I heard a, a common presentation of the gospel that it's like a parachute. Um, that uh, the plane you're on is going down, and uh, eventually you're going to need uh, to jump. And to survive, you need, a, you need a parachute. I think that you could pull some things from that. I think that, you know, maybe, maybe uh, the plane is going down, the gospel is the only way to be saved. Okay, that's a good point. Um, but as I look at the scriptures uh, and I look at Colossians, uh, the letter to the Colossians, I see more and more that Jesus is anti-parachute, okay? Uh, bear with me. Uh, Jesus is anti-parachute. My, my illustration would be more along the lines of uh, doing a tandem jump with Jesus. So he hooks you to himself and jumps off the plane. And then when you're, when you're headed down, on the way down, he looks you in the eye and he shows you the parachute. And he just chucks it, okay? And maybe he delivers like a good 80s action hero one-liner or something like that. You're like, where's the parachutes? And he's like, there are no parachutes or something like that. <laughs> He's got, like, uh, Kurt Russell hair or anything like that. Just top it all off. Um, so I'm going to explain further. For now, I just want you to get from that um, that I think Jesus is anti-parachute. Just uh, keep that in mind. Um, so let's keep this theme going. Take a 30,000-foot view of the letter of the Colossians so we can see what, what is developing here in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Um, so when you look at the, the letter of the Colossians as a whole, like I said in previous weeks, so theologically rich. There's a lot going on. Just reading those 17 verses, and trust me, trying to prepare a sermon to cover those 17 verses feels like you're trying to get the ocean into a glass. There's so much there. If you look closely, you spend some time with it, you'll see some patterns. You see some signs and indicators of the flow of, of Paul's argument. Um, and one helpful way to see what's developing here is to look at the letter to the Colossians through the filter of commands. You look at the letter of Colossians and see where are all the commands. And, and if, you do, if you look through that lens, you find that Paul uh, includes most of his commands uh, in the latter half of the, of the letter, in chapters 3 and 4. The first chapter doesn't include any commands. It was actually hard to preach that one. How do you preach a sermon that has no, you know, off a text with no commands? Um, we looked at the, 
we looked at the conditional statement there, uh, if you uh, shift from the hope of the gospel. That's what, that's what we were talking about in, in Colossians 1. But uh, what is in Colossians 1 is what I call, I call them non-commands. Non-commands, okay? The, uh, like in Luke 1, 9 and 10, uh, Paul's like, I'm praying that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. You see what he did there? See what Paul did? He gave a command, but he didn't. Okay? He, kinda, he, he, he gave a command, but he didn't. He gave a non-command, I call it. That's not a theological uh, term. I call it a non-command. Um, uh, have you ever been on the receiving end of a prayer command? Somebody's praying for you and they start giving you commands? Like, they're just praying for you, though? I'm just praying for you, bro. I'm not telling you what to do. Have you ever given your friend a little nudge saying you've been praying for them to do such and such thing? It's okay. Paul did it. Paul did this. I was like, I'm praying for you that you would do this and this and this and this. I'm praying for that. Not telling you what to do. I just met you. We haven't even met face to face. I'm just sending you a letter. I'm praying for you. That could get out of hand. It could. Um, you know, you walk up to your friend and say, hey, I'm praying, you know, you just answer my email that I sent you last week. <laughs> Not telling you what to do. Just praying for you. Just want you to know that. It's encouragement. Um, so remember, like I said, that Paul hasn't met these people face to face. And when you're not well acquainted... In many cases, not all, but in many cases, it doesn't reflect a whole lot of relational wisdom to come out of the gates with direct commands. Uh, instead, we see Paul's encouragements, his affirmations, reminders of what the gospel is. Paul is, is laying relational groundwork for the commands that come later. Uh, so that's the way the letter is until 2.6. And like we talked about, this is like a hitch that the whole thing starts to swing on. When we get to 2.6, Paul says, as you received... Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him is the first command of the letter. At least it's the first one that I see. Um, and and this, this walking in Christ, this nuts and bolts of the Christian life is then unpacked in the rest of the letter. The deeper you get into the letter, the more practical the commands get. All in all, there are dozens of commands throughout Colossians, barely any of them in the first two chapters. Um, and they're good commands. They're life-giving commands. We, we talked about the commands in, in Colossians 2. There is a few about rejecting the false teaching. Don't let them disqualify you. Don't let them judge you. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was about re- rejecting what the false teachers were trying to place upon them. In chapter 3, it begins with a couple of statements about uh, having a new mindset. And then... What makes this so dense here is four lists just unfold in rapid succession here. There's two lists of vices to be done away with. One of them is uh, in chapter or, uh, verse five. It's uh, vices of of the of the heart, and then in verse eight, there's vices of uh, many. Of, most of them are are the tongue, but they're all relational. So th- those two lists of vices. Then there's a third list of categories of people uh, that. You know, those categories should no longer cause division and judgment. The fourth list is of the heart postures and practices of the new humanity that believers are to begin walking in. And so this is a lot. 
and I'm not even to the summary commands and the household commands and the general commands about prayer and speech and walking wisdom. And then Paul does some housekeeping and he issues a few more commands before he's done about specific people. It's a lot. But these commands are good. These are life-giving commands. Paul is not commanding us to do what is wrong. He's not, uh, he's not placing uh, a burden on us, even though at first it might seem like a burden. It's like, wow, it's a lot of things I need to put on my checklist, a lot of things that I'm not doing. And you start doing. Um, yeah, we do need to start doing those, but it's not, it's not like that. It's not, okay, go out and do these, and that's how to be a Christian. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what the whole message of, of Scripture and Colossians is about. Because let me say this. What do our rebel hearts do with commands? They don't fulfill them very well. And if you can't fulfill them, you've got to twist them. you got to misuse them. Or you're just going to feel really bad. We, we misuse commands. This is what our rebel hearts tend to do. Rather than using them as a way to build up others and to help them finish, uh, uh, reach the finish line, we use them to judge and disqualify people, just like the false teachers did. We emphasize sometimes commands that we personally don't struggle following with, so it's, let's harp on that one. It's one that everybody else has a problem with, not me. And it creates the illusion of good performance so we can feel good. This happens naturally. This is like... This is like a way, a way that our minds deal with, I'm not doing very well at this. And so we start making elaborate systems of, of excuses and justification and kind of we start naturally misusing things. Um, it's natural. It's not good. It's not the right way, but it is natural. We use them sometimes to manipulate people. We use them thinking that we can manipulate God, that through our good performance, we can position ourselves to be entitled to his favor and blessing. That God, see, look, I fulfilled this command. Now I deserve for you to bless this or to give me this. Like the Utah was talking about last week, we use them to hide. Rather than fulfilling the commands in an effort to show the love of God in our hearts, we use them to actually hide what's in our hearts, to hide our true selves. Sometimes, and all those seem pretty nefarious right there, sometimes, you know what? We use the command in a way that doesn't even benefit us. We use them to, to con- make ourselves feel condemned. We use them in a way that we think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not using this against any other people. I'm actually trying to use this uh, the way that God wants me to use it, so I'm beating myself up with it. I'm being hard on myself. And we use them in a way that discourages, frustrates, condemns, and exasperates us. Not the way these commands were supposed to be received. When Paul sent this, he did not have in his mind, yeah, they're going to have a tough time with this. This is going to be discouraging. That's not the way that Paul sent this letter. And so if the commands are discouraging you, frustrating you, I want you to be open to a new perspective today on these commands, that they're not meant to do that. They're life-giving commands. They're life-giving. And so we could talk really all day about those elaborate frameworks, those coping mechanisms, those strategies that we employ uh, 
because those commands we get frustrated and we're not doing well. So we want to flourish in life. But if we misuse the commands, if we, if we come up with all these ways to twist them, we're not going to flourish in life. They're not going to yield life to us. Instead, we will find that we are ultimately continuing to participate in a condemned earthly system which is opposed to God and is under his wrath. That we've, we haven't truly gone into the new life. We haven't begun walking in the new life if, if we misuse those commands to, to try to get them to, to help us flourish. Um, although the commands may be from Scripture, and that may give an appearance of, of godliness, our misuse of them does not reflect godliness. It reflects a set of ethics and a worldview that is unscriptural and is tied to this earthly system in the old life. So this is what we, <clears throat> what we really have to get, is whenever we t we're, we're walking out the old ways and our hearts have not changed, and we just take the commands, we go, I'm going to try to fulfill these. And I'm going, to, I'm going to flourish in life by just fulfilling these commands. We are continuing the old ways. We're continuing it. The commands that we see in Colossians here present us with new ways for a new humanity. They're not just given to the old humanity to try to reform itself. We don't reform ourselves. These commands were not given to the old humanity. They were given to, the, to people who have entered into the new life. So that's what we've got to get there. We don't just grab onto the commands. There's a new life that we have to experience because if we're just trying to walk it out while continuing the old life, frustration, discouragement, condemnation. The problem is our rebel hearts don't want to give up the old life. We want to take the commands and fulfill them and receive blessing or whatever we can get from them. And we want to keep that old life alive. That's what we want to do. That brings us back to our parachute motif. We are tempted to reach for the commands like a parachute. We want them to help us preserve the lives that we have. We want to keep doing us, but we want to, we want to also we want to have everything. We want to, we want to keep the things that we like, that we, we got going on, but we want to have Jesus and, and, and religion, and we want, to, we want to do this thing. We want to make God happy. We want to have both at the same time. The commands will fail to fulfill that purpose. They're never meant for that. These commands were given after the work of Jesus on the cross, and they were not given as parachutes to preserve the old life. They were given as adornments for the new life. That's the way that these commands were given. Paul did not write to the Colossians, hey, guys, you need to reform yourselves. You need to become Christians by doing stuff. And he said, you guys, he's been spending a couple of chapters saying, you have died with Christ, and you have been raised, and you are in the new life. Now here is what the new life is adorned with. That's the way he's speaking to them. Chapter 3 begins with that if. It indicates that everything else is conditional upon something. These commands are not meant to be received by people who have not fulfilled the condition. The condition is if you have been raised with Christ. 
Raised implies death. You can't be raised if you have not died. And it reaches back to uh, chapter 2 where he says you have died with Christ. So these commands are meant for people who have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ. You cannot simply be taught or disciplined into the kingdom. I cannot reform you. You cannot reform yourself through just getting head knowledge and disciplining yourself. You cannot enter the new life that way. You enter the kingdom through Jesus' death and his resurrection to new life. You are reborn into the kingdom. Now, if you could open up to me, if you, you may already have it open up, but cha- chapter 3, let's just look at verses 1 through 4. We won't do this with the whole passage, but let's read through that in light of as if the, the reader has not died with Christ, okay, has not participated in Jesus' death. It reads this way. If then you have not been raised with Christ, because you haven't died, don't seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Don't set your mind on things that are above. Set your minds on things that are on earth, where you have not died, and your life is not hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is not your life because you have not participated in his death and resurrection, appears... You will not appear with him in glory. Whoo. Okay. That's how it comes to us if we don't fulfill the condition of participating in his death. That's discouraging. That's, there's, there's nothing encouraging there. So Paul didn't write this to people who have not participated in Christ's death. He, he didn't write this like, you need, you need to do all this, this, and this. He wrote it to people who have. we got to get that. Or the commands, they're like death to us. Because they only show the things that we aren't doing and can't do. But if we participate in Jesus' death... Now, let me say it this way. I have, I, my main difference with the illustration of the gospel as a parachute, is it that it implies that in your current state, you just simply need to survive, that that is your problem, that you need to survive. And so the gospel comes in, it's got you, and it will help you survive. But the scriptures speak to the contrary, that something needs to die in you in order for you to live. Something needs to die in order for you to live. It isn't, hey, need a parachute so you can survive? Here you go. No, it's hook yourself to me. I'm, I've chucked all the parachutes. We're going down together so I can raise you back up with me. That is what the gospel is saying. By faith, when a person places their faith in Christ, they are spiritually united with him. That's why this is a tandem jump. You don't make the jump yourself. It's a tandem jump. You go with Jesus. You're hooked together with him inseparably. But this is no ordinary tandem jump. Jesus doesn't guide you down to a comfortable landing. He doesn't take the wheel and preserve you in your current state. He's not interested in preserving your old life. That's why this is a shootless jump. We participate in the death of Christ and our old life dies so that we can participate in his resurrection and enter into the new life. That's the prereq of Colossians. The prereq of Colossians 
for walking out these commands is to have done that shootless tandem jump with Jesus. Or you could just say, a little less complicated, you died with Jesus. You could just say that. So I have a question for you, though. Have you taken that jump with Jesus? I ask that because I don't want you to receive the Bible and the letter to the Colossians as a religion that now is your responsibility to work out in your own strength. And I don't want these commands to be like a heavy burden of death that you will, want, you will one day get frustrated enough you will walk away from because it won't be giving you life. Have you taken that jump with Jesus? Have you died with Christ to the old life? Or are you trying to follow the Bible's commands on the side as a way to feel good about continuing your old life? Don't do that, friend. I feel really bad for you if you're trying to do that. I feel really bad for you. Don't do that. You're not going to be able to live that out. You're not going to be able to do it. I'm inviting you to, Jesus, to participate in Jesus' death so you can participate in his life. So that, so that these commands would be like life to you. So they wouldn't be like death. All right, so we've got that overview. Doing all right, doing all right. We got the overview that Colossians 3 is a chapter that brings the commands to the forefront. We've got our motif that these commands are not parachutes that preserve the old life. These are adornments for the new life. And we've got our prereq that to enter into that new life, we participate in Christ's death and resurrection. And we've looked at what it's like to read through those verses in light of not participating in the death and resurrection. Let's return to them now in light of having participated in them. Verses 1 through 4. These point us to a new mindset and a new life orientation. Not one that you can do yourself. Jesus gives us to you, He enables you to have this. Let me say that. By His death and giving you the new life and regenerating your heart, He enables you to have this mindset. No one can have this mindset without it. This is a life that is lived in the reality of the heavenly kingdom. This kingdom is ruled over, this heavenly kingdom is ruled over by Jesus, the first and foremost of those who have been resurrected. The description of Him at the right hand of God isn't literally meant to, to give us a picture of, okay, there's the Father and he's sitting to the right of the Father. It's not really what is meant here. What is meant here is that Jesus has been granted the highest honor and favor and supremacy in lordship. That is what is being communicated there. He's been, he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been granted the highest honor. And that he is sitting there does not mean that he is spiritually distant or removed from what is going on in the world. He is present by his spirit and his heavenly kingdom is presently coming into the world. In one sense, it has already come when Christ inaugurated his kingdom at the resurrection. In that sense, it has come. The kingdom is here. At the same time, the kingdom has also not yet come. Verse 4 says that it points to a future time when the kingdom will be completely made visible as Christ is made visible to the whole world and his people are made visible. Speaking of visible, we see in these verses that our lives are hidden now. That's an interesting thing to say. What do you mean that my life is hidden? 
It says that we're, we're hidden now, but when Christ appears, we will appear with him. Now, there are a few ways in which this hiddenness and the appearance plays out. One is that in Christ, we now have a heavenly identity. It's real. It's real. But it's hidden. We don't necessarily appear different. Like, we don't right now look like we've been changed into people who have a heavenly identity. Not in the physical, vivid, visual sense, like I'm looking at you right now. We kind of look like the same people as before. There's a hiddenness to what has happened to our spiritual identity. We do not appear different now, but one day we who are in Christ will be revealed when he appears to the world. Another aspect of that hiddenness um, was explained by uh, Becca Ayer at, uh, recently at the women's conference. Becca read the scripture this morning. Um, uh, her and Kento serve in several capacities here at Pillar. And uh, Becca preached on uh, Colossians 3 at the women's conference. And uh, I just wanted to read to you uh, a, a few excerpts of what she said about the hiddenness of our lives in Christ. Um, she said, our lives appear as hidden as we consistently and contentedly choose Christ over ourselves. They are hidden as we do the chores, bathe the children, make meals, make ethical decisions throughout the workday, all going mostly unnoticed and unrewarded. Our lives are hidden as we obey God, not only in the outward actions that are obvious to our neighbors, but also as we choose obedience in the secret, unseen places of our hearts. Our lives are even hidden as we are passed up for promotions or looked down upon for choosing Christ above our careers. But the promise in Colossians is clear. Future glory with Christ is coming. We may not be rewarded or vindicated in this lifetime, but our eternal reward is of far greater value. And all service, all service done unto him is seen and known by the Father. Couldn't have said it better myself. So let me ask you, are you living your life in light of this reality of Christ's coming kingdom? If you have died with Christ and have been raised with him, this is not a command that you now need to do on your own strength. This is just the way that now you adorn your life. This is your new clothes. So I ask that question not as a heavy burden. I ask that question as, hey, if you've done this, this is what, this is what belongs to you now. In verse 5, the death concept comes back again, but it's used a little differently this time. Up to this point, all references to dying have been about the one-time participation in Christ's death that brings us into Jesus' family. But the reference here is about a continual outworking of what has already been done. Now that we've died with Christ to the old life, every day we seek to do away with the vestiges and the remnants of the old life, those postures, and those practices that go together with it. The representative word here that is used is earthly. Again, that word doesn't necessarily strike us in, in English the way that we, we would, we, that, that Paul is meaning it. And because uh, he, he says, put to death what is earthly in us. What is not meant is that we should view 
physical, material, earthly things as bad. That was actually a false teaching in Paul's time called Gnosticism that, that in order to attain true spirituality, you had to put off everything that was physical because the physical, material world was, is bad. Um, this doesn't square with uh, the fact that Scripture teaches us that God created that physical world good. And it's fallen, and there's a lot of corruption in it, but it is not inherently bad so that whenever we, if we put it away, that doesn't make us inherently good. We don't become good by just putting off what is physical. We, we become good whenever we die to that and Jesus gives his goodness to us. That we're no longer participating in the goodness and the virtues, the so-called virtues and ethics of the world, which are wickedness, really. If you look at Paul's list of vices here, he's not talking about, hey, like, you know, get rid of this physical thing and that physical thing. He's talking about sinful heart attitudes arising from, like Luto was saying last week, over-desire. Because you see the ending modifier there, which is idolatry. It tells you where all this is coming from and what's causing all this. It's idolatry. Idolatry being fixed on something else than Jesus is bringing about these things. Now, Paul is not saying, put to death your sexuality. Does he say that? No. Put to death your sexual immorality. He doesn't say, put to death your desires. He says, put to death your evil desires. Getting rid of all your earthly possessions may not be necessary. It may or may not. That's not really what's being called for here. But putting to death covetousness is. That is what being, is being called for here. Verse 6 says that these are the things for which God is bringing wrathful judgment on the world. So you who have died with Christ and been raised with him and are inheriting his kingdom and have God's favor, the Father's favor upon you and been qualified, these things don't belong in your life. They don't belong there. Because these things are the reasons that God's wrathful judgment are coming upon the world, but you're not, you're not under his wrathful judgment. These things don't belong in your life. They don't. Verses 8 and 9 give another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying to one another. These are to be put away. And notice here that Paul uses past tense language. He's being very aggressive with, with, his, with his talk here about how this has happened that this is a reality, that this is true, that this is not something that we dream up or think up or we're hyping up, that he says, this has happened, you have died, and you have been raised. He uses past tense language. He's saying that it is a reality that you are a new person in Christ by faith. Now, earlier I talked about the hiddenness of our life in Christ. Sometimes it can be hidden to us. Sometimes it, we look at ourselves and it's like, where is, where is the stuff I can, I can like, be like, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's like hidden. I don't see it. I don't see Jesus in my life. Wow. I look at all I see in my life is my sin, my failure, my failure to live up to these commands. So sometimes it can be hidden to us, and we can get discouraged from time to time about our seeming lack of growth and lack of maturity. And I think, friends, that God gives us those moments not 
because he wants us to be condemned or discouraged. He gives those moments to us as gifts, I believe. I believe he gives you that moment as a gift where you look at your life and you're like, what can I take hope in? I don't see any maturity. I'm so immature. I'm, I don't see any progress for like six months in my spiritual growth. And I think God brings you there as a gift so that you would stop being fixated on your progress and be fixated on Christ. When we're discouraged about our progress, maybe progress has become our idol. Maybe we look to our progress as our hope. Check, see, am I doing this now? Yep, I feel good. Not because of what Christ has done in me, not because he's my hope, but because I'm seeing this progress. And you see, progress is a good thing. We turn good things into idols and they become bad things. And sometimes progress becomes an idol. You're fixated on, how am I doing? How am I performing? Not doing good? I'm going I'm, I'm to be discouraged and condemned today. Doing good? I'm be feeling good today. Really, that just leads to pride or condemnation. It's a trap. It's a trap that an idol pulls you into. We have a choice. We continue looking to our progress and it's okay to look at your progress, but if you look to it for your hope and your peace, it's just going to drain you. Because like you just said last week, those idols, they don't give you life. They don't supply you with anything. They drain you. You look to them, they don't give you hope and peace. They make you more and more condemned. Or we can look to Christ and what he has done. And in Christ, we can take joy that our progress and our growth, even when we don't see it visibly, it is already a reality in a sense, because it is assured by what Christ has already done in us. Think of Philippians 1.6, where, where Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He, didn't, he doesn't say, I am sure that, that, that God started this work, but you'll be able to complete it. So keep tracking your progress and keep making sure that you complete yourself. No, he says, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. Our assurance and our confidence of our growth and our maturity and our sanctification is in Christ and what he's already done. We have assurance in it. And we can look to that when we don't see any visible manifestations lately that we've been progressing. We can look to that assurance right there and be fixated on him. Verse 11 brings us a different list, a list of categories of people. Not necessarily exhaustive, but to give example. The word here that he begins it with, here, modifies uh, the word new in the sentence before. So it's connected to the sentence before about the new humanity. So when he says here, he's not talking about geographically, locationally. He's talking about here in the new humanity, this is what's true. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, etc. That's what's true in the new humanity. In the world, in the old life, this is all true. This is all still, still, still there, still causing division, still causing superiority and inferiority, causing judgment, causing oppression. Not so in the new life. The meaning of this verse as a whole does not mean that the gospel does away with all categories. When we enter into new life with Christ, we don't become a, a blank slate without context. 
we still have our contexts, we still have our backgrounds, uh, we still have our roles. And Paul, in his letters, even uses these categories of Jews and Greeks. Uh, he, he uses those, those terms in other letters. So it's not that he was saying, hey, now we're going to stop calling people Jews and Greeks. We don't say that as Christians anymore. He uses it in his letters. That's not what he means, that we no longer tell, call people Jew or Greek or circumcised and uncircumcised. And in this letter, you look, we'll get into it next week, but 3.18 through 4.1 he continues to address people in categories. He says, husbands, wives. He says, bond servants, which are slaves. So he still continues to address them in those categories. But there's something that has changed, something very fundamental, something that takes away what the old life and what the old system is doing to crush people. And instead, people are becoming freed and people are being loved and respected because uh, in the gospel, we do away with the division and the superiority that is associated with these categories. We do away with the judgment, and we are seen as equal in Christ. Even though we have our roles, we have equality in Christ. Those are the practices of the old life, those, that division and that superiority. But in the church, Jesus has given us a community made up of people who are different, but not divided. That's what we're supposed to be in the new humanity. Different, but not divided. We never left behind our race, our context, our background, our roles. But now those things no longer cause division. Those things no longer cause racism. Those things should no longer cause sexism. They should no longer, that, that doesn't belong in the new humanity. It doesn't belong in the church. And this community of people who are different but not divided is a strong, constant reminder of our new identity. All right, we're going to bring it home. Three, verses 12 through 17, we come to this. Colossae was a town that produced fabrics. And Paul seems to use here language that they could relate to. The words put on are used twice in this paragraph. And they're a succession of individual Layers, if you will, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, with love, binding all the layers together in harmony. This is the proper adornment for the new humanity. Paul has been explaining the things that don't belong. They don't, they shouldn't be, you shouldn't wear those things anymore now that your identity has changed. These are the ways that this is your proper adornment. So this, this section of the letter comes to a close fittingly with Christ as the touchstone. It is not just any peace that we should let rule in our hearts, but the peace of Christ. It is also his word that should dwell in us richly. In fact, all of these layers named here are essentially a putting on of Christ. This is, this is what Christ has brought this is what Christ has made possible. This is Christ's heart. And when we put these on, we are becoming like him. We are putting on him. These are his ways and his heart. And we have this opportunity because he didn't give us a parachute. That's why we have this opportunity. Because he didn't come and give us a parachute to preserve that old life. He gave us better. He gave us himself so that we could leave behind that 
old life with its filthy rags and be adorned by him. Now, uh, we're going we're gonna, to, uh, Ethan's going to come up and he's going to pray in response to this. And he'll lead our church family in prayer to respond to this message. And, uh, and then we're going to sing. Um, so Ethan, come on up. Thank you.